0: Welcome to Watchman on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Friends, we want you to make plans today to join us at one of our upcoming events. Our first event of the new year is coming up February 16th and 17th in the Tampa Bay, Florida area, and then Lord willing, Tri-Cities Tennessee will be next up on March 8th and 9th. Is America in Bible Prophecy? Find out from Donald Perkins on February 16th and 17th in Florida. There you'll find the latest details on the march toward a one-world system, biblical mysteries will be uncovered, and you'll learn how to have true spiritual victory in the invisible war on the saints. Biblical artifacts from Israel will be on display, with an archaeologist ready to answer your questions. Friday and Saturday, February 16th and 17th at Hicks Road Baptist Church, Call 1-800-652-1144 for more information or visit the events page at swrc.com. Tickets for this special event are free, but seating is limited. Don't be left behind. Register today. 1-800-652-1144. Last October, Bill Federer was a speaker at our Columbus, Ohio conference. Today, we're going to listen to a portion of his presentation on socialism.
1: Well, thank you, Matt, and thank each and every one of you for being here. And I'm just going to jump into my presentation. Hopefully you can see the screen. Um, so I wrote a book called Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. And the subtitle is How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. Saul Alinsky, he did an interview two months before he died to Rolling Stone magazine, March 1972. He says, if there is an afterlife and I have anything to say about it, I will unreservedly choose to go to hell. Hell would be heaven for me. Once I get into hell, I'll start organizing the have-nots over there. They're my kind of people. I don't think that is what he's experiencing right now. And um, Now, it's one thing of them wanting to sow division, but they want to Blame you for it. Isn't that interesting? It's called psychological projection. The attacker blames the victim. Blame shifting. Accuse others of what you do, and uh, it's a narcissistic, narcissistic defense mechanism to avoid responsibility. So it's built in. Little kids do it. I didn't start the fight. You did. Or a cheating spouse will accuse the faithful spouse of being unfaithful, and it's in the Bible. Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of lusting after her when she was lusting after him. And Ahab finally meets Elijah, and Ahab says, is that you, the troubler of Israel? And Elijah says, "Uh uh-uh, you got it backwards. You're the one troubling Israel with all your paganism? Jesus even references it. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but fail to notice the beam in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the beam out of your own eye. So here's somebody with a beam, the guilty person, accusing this person that's relatively innocent. And um, the Pharisees, they saw Paul praying in the temple. And they stir up a riot. And they're pulling Paul apart. And the Romans have to rescue Paul. And so there's a trial. And the Pharisee's attorney, Tertullus, begins to accuse Paul, saying, We have found this man a pestilent fellow, a mover of sedition among the Jews, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who has gone about to profane the temple. Then Paul answered, They neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. They're the ones that started the insurrection in the capital, but they wanted to blame this innocent Paul for it. Nero set fire to Rome, but he blamed the innocent Christians. They even did it to Jesus. Here are these Pharisees, right? Their father's the devil. And and they point at Jesus and they say, he's demon-possessed. They're accusing Jesus of having a demon, and Adam did it to God himself. He blame-shifted. Adam sinned, but he says, well, it's the woman you gave me. It's, it's really your fault. And so it's gotten into politics. David Axelrod was an advisor to a previous president. And on NPR radio, April 19, 2010, he says, in Chicago, there was an old tradition of throwing a brick through your own campaign office window and then calling a press conference to say you've been attacked. So you do the terrible stuff, but you uh, accuse your innocent person. So let's say there's a, a person running for president that is colluding with Russia, giving away a fifth of the U.S. uranium to Russia in exchange for a $145 million contribution to her Clinton Foundation. She wants to pay for a steel dossier to accuse her opponent of colluding with Russia. He gets smeared with it in the news for years, has to go through an impeachment trial, and when it finally gets pointed back at her, The water's muddied. the public doesn't know who to trust, and all she has to do is pay a $113,000 fine to the FEC. And then let's say there's another candidate running for president and he's extorting Ukraine, saying stop investigating my son Hunter or I'm going to hold back billions of dollars of U.S. money. What do you want to do? They want to accuse his opponent of extorting Ukraine. You accuse them of the exact crime that you're guilty of. Why? Because then it gets repeated over and over again in the news, people make a mental connection, and then if it ever gets pointed back at the real guilty person, by that time the water's muddied, the public's worn out on the issue, and you get a pass. I'm convinced they knew that Biden had classified documents illegally in his garage next to his Corvette. And they knew it was going to become public knowledge. And so, and they, you know, and Pence had documents. And, all, and so they intentionally staged a very, very public, visible raid to get Trump's papers for so, the sole reason of headlines. That's all they wanted it for. They, they, they knew the papers were there. They went there, they checked on the papers. They said, oh, put another lock." They knew all of it. They just wanted headlines. So that it would be this big splash, and everybody would say, documents, t- documents, t- documents. And then when it finally comes out, well, t- 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 Biden had documents. Pence had documents. By that time, it's like, oh, it's old news. And so, so we see this sowing of division, but the sowing of division and them wanting to blame you for it, this projection. And then it even takes another step up with something called false flags. Now, what's that? It's a pirate term. I spoke in Beaufort, North Carolina. To a large political group, and they had tables of judges and congressmen and everything, and it was right there on the coast. It was a really cool facility because the back was all windows, and there's the waves of the ocean. And um, this is near Okra where Blackbeard sank his Queen Anne Revenge pirate ship. So The British began to crack down on pirates and he had a bunch of ships and so he sort of wanted to downsize and so he decided he was going to run one of his ships aground there and um, so the locals have a museum and the one guy that ran the museum was like driving me around town and he said you know the pirates really didn't want to fight because if they got wounded there's no pirate hospitals and um, and they didn't want to blow up the booty they're trying to get anyway. So the whole goal was to psychologically shock and awe, get them into fear and panic, so they just hand over their booty. And so the false flag was they would raise a flag of a friendly nation in distress. And so there's a ship coming by, and they look through their telescope. Oh, look, there's a friendly nation in distress. And they will get closer and closer and closer. And they would get too close to be able to get away quickly. And all of a sudden, this really fast pirate ship would take down the friendly flat flag in distress, put up the pirate flag, and these people would be like, oh no! <laughs> and the pirate ship would like zip over there. And Blackbeard was like six foot eight. He had this big mop of hair, this big black beard, and he would take the wicks that you would light the cannons with. He'd light him on fire and stick him in his beard and in his hair so he was like this big smoking demon. He'd have his pistols in his hand, his dagger in his teeth, and the pirates would jump on and they'd be like, ah, just take my money, just let me live, just leave me alone. So it was a psychological operation. And so this false flag got put into political and military use. And so I put together for you a string of these stories, and one is... The King of Sweden, Sweden used to be a big country and it controlled parts of Russia and Latvia and Estonia and the Baltic. And the the King of Sweden, Gustav III, wanted to have his parliament approve money so he could fight the Russians. But the parliament was like, hey, everything's fine. We don't need to fight. And so the King of Sweden decided to have the tailor of the Royal Swedish Opera, sew Russian uniforms, and had his Swedish soldiers put on the Russian uniforms and attack a Swedish outpost at Pumala. And suddenly, the news spreads with panic. The Russians had attacked. The Russians- We saw them. They were in the Russian uniforms. The Russians had attacked. And it, and it gets all the way to Stockholm, and the parliament's like, oh, OK, they just approved the funding. And this happened again with the Gleivitz incident 1939 Germans, Nazis wanted to invade Poland and world public opinion would have viewed the Germans as the aggressors. And so the Nazis had their soldiers dress up in Polish uniforms and attack a German outpost at Gleiwitz that happened to have a radio tower. And the radio announcer is giving play-by-play reports. And the Polish are shooting us, and the Polish are over here, the Polish are... Here, and, the Polish are and, it, and it spreads across Germany and the world that the Polish had attacked. And the Nazis are like, well, you started it. And they invade Poland and take it over in 1939 when the Nazis did the whole thing. And um, the um, Soviets did it in 1939 too. So they wanted to invade Finland. And world public opinion wouldn't support it. And so the Soviets shell one of their own Russian villages on the Finnish border. And the news picks it up, the Finns had shelled this Russian village. And that provided the excuse for the, the Soviets to say, well, you started it. And they invade Finland in the Winter War of 1939. Japan did a similar thing. They were growing in imperialistic power, taking over all kinds of countries, and they were able to get a railroad on a very you know, small part of China, and they claim that there was a railroad explosion in 1931 at Mukden, and so the Japanese invade China, and they go to Nan- Nanking, China, and they kill 100,000 Chinese, And then, afterwards, there's an international investigation. They walk the entire railroad line, and there was no explosion. What, maybe a missing spike or something? The whole thing was completely fabricated. And then Turkey. Am am I going too fast? I've got my little clock here, and it's like clicking away. So I'm like, how can I get through all this? So um, Turkey, uh, the Ottoman Empire ended. And they got a leader named Ataturk, who was moderate. He outlaws Sharia. He outlaws the beards and the fezes and the burqas and the first one to let women go, get an education. And uh, he said that Mohammedism is nothing more than Arab politics. And he, he dies in 1938. Well, now it's 1955. And you got a Turkish leader named Menderez, and he wants to go back to the Sultan's era of this Islamic uh, empire. And so the, there's a remnant Greek Orthodox community in Constantinople, now called Istanbul. And um, the uh, plan was to have a Turkish university student put a bomb in the home of Ataturk, which is over in Greece, and in the Turkish consulate, which is over in Greece. The bombs never went off, but the newspapers ran with the story anyway. A bomba, right? And it whips the people of Istanbul into a frenzy and they attack the Greek Orthodox neighborhoods, and they pillage it, they loot it, they rob it, they set it on fire, they kill people, they destroy 80 ancient churches. And, um, and then Erdo- Erdogan did a similar thing. So he runs to be president of Turkey as a secular person, And uh, this is what The Economist magazine said. Democracy is like a train, said Mr. Erdogan. Once you get off, once you've reached your destination. So he gets democratically elected, but once he's in, he begins to act like a dictator. And so there's a growing anti-Erdogan movement, and he doesn't like that. And so he stages a coup against himself, and he flies up in a circle and then lands, and then he pulls out a list of 30,000 of his political opponents, and he has them zip-tied, taken away, and they've not been seen since. And so this is the tactic where you do something and you blame it on the innocent people as your excuse to get rid of them. So Stalin, 1934, and he's killing thousands of people, and so there's a growing anti-Stalinist movement. And at the same time, Stalin has a friend, Sergei Kirov, who's the party boss of Leningrad, and he's giving speeches praising Stalin, and he's getting a little too popular for Stalin's comfort. They even built a statue to Sergei Kirov. So Stalin had an idea. He would assassinate his friend, Sergei Kirov, and eliminate a potential rival, and blame the assassination on the anti-Stalinists. Everybody would believe it, because the anti-Stalinists didn't like Stalin, and they didn't like Sergei Kirov defending Stalin. Stalin used this as an excuse to have some hearings, to do some questioning, to bring in people, to arrest people, to detain people, and to lock them away, and to kill over a million people in the first great purge in 1936-38. to And Germany did a similar thing. So it was a republic in the 1920s, early 30s, a republic. And people voted, and they had parties. And one of the parties was the National Socialist Workers' Party. And the head of it was Hitler. And this party had a under-the-table violent group, sort of like people pretty much connect the dots that Antifa and BLM are under-the-table connected with the Democrat Party. And so Hitler's under-the-table group was called the Brown Shirts, nicknamed Sturmabteilung, which means stormtroopers, because they would storm into the meetings of Hitler's opponents and disrupt the meeting. And then they would lock arms and block access to public buildings. Could you imagine people locking arms in public and blocking things? Then they blocked streets. And then they went into the cities and they smashed windows and looted and set on fire over 7,500 stores owned by Jews in the night of broken glass, Kristallnacht. And then, oh, did I mention their capital got set on fire? There was an insurrection. And evidence points to Hitler's own people setting the fire. But in the confusion, Hitler accuses his political opponents of doing it. And he decides he's going to have some hearings. And he's going to start questioning people. And he's going to start detaining people and arresting people. And he shot them without a trial. And when the dust settles, Hitler didn't have any political opponents left. You know, Tucker Carlson played the video of the very first people into the US Capitol. And they're all dressed in black with tactical gear. And they come in in a military formation.
0: Man through the window is wearing full tactical body armor and is carrying a baseball bat.
1: Other, yeah. So there, there wasn't like Trump supporters that were wearing like full tactical armor and baseball bats, dressed in black, you know, with their faces covered at the rallies. Like, where did these guys come from? And then it comes out that there were FBI operatives in the crowd, and lots of FBI operatives. And then there's Ray Epps, and he was even on video saying we got to break into the Capitol. And then he's down there in front. They have video of him removing the barricades. And then his text saying, I'm orchestrating the whole thing. And in this picture to the side of him is a guy with a ball cap. And he was seen at all of the Antifa BLM riots that destroyed like 60 cities across the country. And so it looks very much like this was a planned event. Very similar to Hitler wanting to get rid of his political opponents, Stalin wanting to get rid of his political opponents. You stage something that you can blame on innocent people for your goal of getting rid of them. And then you go from that to global. And so uh, Impermiss magazine had the article, and they quoted Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, Theory of right. The, if the past five centuries in Europe and America have taught us anything, it is that acute crises contribute to boosting the power of the state. And so they now want to have global crises. You know, it's interesting, Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal, and uh, he's not known for making religious statements, but just last November, he spoke at Stanford, and he said this, the zeitgeist on the other side, and zeitgeist is the attitude or the worldview. The zeitgeist on the other side is, we are not going to make it for another century on this planet, and therefore we need to embrace a one-world totalitarian state right now. And he goes on, whatever the dangers are in the future, we need never underestimate the danger of a one-world totalitarian state. And then he quotes Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5.3, the political slogan of the Antichrist is peace and safety. I want to suggest we would do well to be a little more scared of the Antichrist and a little less scared of Armageddon. (laughs) What's he talking about? Don't be scared of the world ending. And oh, climate crisis! We got it. oh, healthcare crisis! Oh, financial crisis! And, and he says, "Be scared of the people that promise to save us from the world ending, right? All these people that come in on the white horse. oh, We'll save you. Just give us all your freedoms, right? And because they're sort of the ones behind, they creating this crisis so that you can, like Machiavelli, right? And um, so the, the globalist tactic is they want to get the whole world into fear: financial fear, healthcare fear, food shortage fear, economic, clo- you know." Central Bank, digital currency, they want to get everybody into fear so that they'll panic and surrender their freedom to the state. And the Lord's response is, fear not. Fear not. Every book in the Bible, fear not. The angel appears, fear not. Um, Perfect love casts out fear. And so the battle is a psychological battle over our mind. Are we going to walk in fear or are we going to walk in faith? And and then here's an observation. As, As more power concentrates into fewer hands globally, God's counterbalance is to get more people involved locally, right? More and more power is getting into the hands of fewer and fewer hands globally. God's counterbalance is to get more and more of us involved locally, right? It's not saying, oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and take us. It's like, who do you think you're going to meet when you go up there, Jesus? You think he's going to ask you, why were you silent when all this wicked stuff was going on? So whether we turn it around or not, let's try, right? And, uh, And so one of the stories in the Bible is it was we were getting really bad in Israel, and they had a wicked king named Manasseh sacrificing kids to Moloch, right? The prophets come to him and say, you are doing the same thing that the people that were here before Israel were doing, the Canaanites, and sacrificing kids to Moloch. And the prophets say, I brought Israel in to judge them, and since you're doing the same thing, I'm going to judge you and drive you out. So the judgment was pronounced. But then Manasseh has a grandson. Named Josiah. And he's a teenager, starts to seek the Lord. He's early 20s. He tells him to clean out the temple that his granddad had trashed. And they come out with the law of God. Josephus said it was the last copy of the law because Manasseh was destroying the law, and it was the original one Moses had wrapped in burlap, burlap in a storage room. And the priests read it and they go, this is pretty important. They read it to this young king. He hears it for the first time in his life and he rips his garments and repents and he sends to a prophetess in town named Huldah, the wife of the king's tailor. And she had a reputation of hearing from God. And the messengers say, well, the king wants to know what's going to happen. And she said, tell the man that sent you that judgment is coming, but not during his lifetime because he repented when he heard the words of the Lord. I'm going to end with this thought. Someday you're going to be dead. It's a nice way to end the talk. And... uh, and you're going to be in heaven because you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for all your sins. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, with no less days to sing his praise of when we just begun. Imagine you have been in heaven for 10,000 years. You're walking the streets of gold. You meet Moses. Maybe Moses will invite you over to his place. I don't know what it's like, but Jesus said in my Father's house, there are many mansions, so I bet Moses will have a pretty nice place. And so you show up, and there's lots of people. Maybe it's a big room like this size. And... Um, uh... I heard uh, Moses will probably have one of those big fireplaces where the logs don't burn up. Get it? The burning bush in the wilderness didn't burn up and the logs in the fireplace. I heard one preacher say, in heaven you will travel as fast as you think. And I'll probably show up late. My wife will say, where where were you? I was thinking about something else. I don't know. (laughs) But imagine we all get there, and after the small talk's over, Moses is sitting right in front of you. You tap him on the shoulder. Say, Moses, I read the book. I even saw the movie. But here you are in person. The room will get quiet. Moses will stand up, and he goes, I was 80 years old, and it looked bad. Pharaoh, the most powerful military leader in the world, was charging in, and we were totally unarmed. And I just had my staff. I said, God, use me to deliver your people. The waves came in and swallowed up Pharaoh's chariots. We're going to say, wow. Then we're going to see David. Say, like, David, David, tell us your story. The room gets quiet. David stands up. He goes, I was just a teenager. And this giant Goliath was mocking our God and making fun of our faith. And all these grown ups are too chicken. And I said, Enough of that. Took my little sling wind out there and hit him in the head, took his own sword and chopped his head off. And one by one, Gideon, the Apostle Paul, Deborah, it's going to be real exciting. And then everyone in the room is going to look at you. Say, so You, we haven't heard from you yet. Tell us your story. What did you do when it was your turn to be down there on earth? What were they saying about God in your country? Or the baby that the Lord knew in the mother's womb? Or Genesis where God made them male and female? What did you do when the whole world was against you? And they're all sitting on the edge of their seat. What are you going to say? You know, I'd hate for any of us to be up there. And Jesus walk in the room. And him saying, um, you know, uh, and he pulls the screen down. with all kinds of great things happening, people come to the Lord and miracles. And him saying... This is what I had planned for you to do down on earth, but you just didn't have enough faith and courage. And you look back at your life, and that mountain that held you back was a little anthill, the fear of man. What are people going to say about me? Are they going to post something bad, or are they going to unfriend me? You say, I let that fear of man hold me back from doing all this great stuff for Jesus. And you can't go back to earth and do anything else because you're already in heaven because you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for all your sins. But guess, guess what? We're still on this earth. We still have breath in our lungs. We still have feet that trod the soil. You still can do those things you'll be known for forever. Out of all the world's history, the good Lord chose for you to be alive right now. He knows every dirty backroom deal. He knows all those wicked secret societies. He knows all that, and he thinks you've got what it takes. He's given you his word. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you great churches. given you great friends. given you a great Southwest Radio Church ministry right? This is your chance to shine, right? It's like a basketball game. Jesus is the coach and you're on the bench and he slaps you on the back and says, okay, your turn, right? Get in the game, And you're like, but coach, they're playing really tough out there. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, It's your turn. Get in the game. And you're like, but coach, somebody just got knocked down. He goes, yeah, you're seven feet tall. They're four feet tall. You can do this. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Though a thousand fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, and shall not come nigh thee. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord raise up a standard against him. This is your chance to do all those great things for the Lord. Right? So I'll end with that. God bless you.
0: We've been listening to a portion of a presentation Bill Federer gave at our Columbus, Ohio Prophecy Conference last October. The entire presentation on socialism is now available on DVD. Call and order your copy when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can order on our website, swrc.com. Also available for the first time is the entire conference. All 12 speakers, 20 total presentations, one complete DVD set. Part of the complete set is Jonathan Kahn's special presentation on the Josiah Manifesto. Order the complete Columbus Conference DVD set today when you call 1 800 652 1144. That's 1 800 652 1144. Tomorrow, Clayton Van Huss will reveal the prophecy of the star and the scepter. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit SWRC.com.